And we thank you because of the new and living way that we can come boldly and that you hear us. And we come and ask that you would quieten every heart and that you would keep us still. Enable us to lay aside every distraction that your Holy Spirit might be able to speak to us individually to lead us into the wonderful truth about this so great salvation you've given us. We ask for his ministry, Father, to each of us that he would strengthen us and grant us clarity of thought and clarity of expression and clarity of hearing. We thank you that he's been given to us to lead us into truth. And so we submit ourselves, Father, to him that he would lead us into truth and that we would embrace that truth and live it out in our lives. Thank you for what you're going to do. For we ask it in the name of your Son. Amen. Alright, let's look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 23. We're on page 230. It says, and not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, what is it that causes us to groan so, according to this text? What are we longing for? The redemption of our body. Now this morning, just as we've talked among ourselves, we've experienced some of that. We groan because our body's failing. So we're eagerly awaiting uh, the redemption of our body. When will that happen? At the rapture. All right, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. Our bodies shall be changed. Those who are dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with the Lord. Until then, we know our body is gradually dying. The outer man is decaying, but the inner man is being renewed every day. All right, in Ephesians 1, verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through what? What was the cost of your redemption? His blood. Now, what does the blood represent in Scripture? Life. The life is in the blood. All right? The forgiveness of trespasses according to what? The riches of His grace. We're only forgiven because of what Christ did on our behalf and because of God's Grace. Give me the definition for grace. 
unmerited empowerment to do the will of God for life and for service. As long as you have breath, God will give you the ability to live a victorious life and to do whatever he's called you to do. All right, in Ephesians 1.14, who, talking about the Holy Spirit, is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Now, what is a pledge? A promise or a down payment. <clears throat> it's security money. If you bought a home, what did you have to do? Put a down payment on it. Now, if the Holy Spirit is just a down payment, what must our inheritance be like? What must it be like? Beyond our comprehension, right? Beyond our comprehension. With a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Who is God's own possession? We are. We're his possession. To the praise of his glory. All right, now let's look at 1 Corinthians Chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? What does it mean that we're not our own? It means we belong to the Lord. All right? For you have been bought with a price, therefore, in light of that, what are we to do with our body? What does it mean to glorify God in your body? It means to live a pure life, okay? The Bible says, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Now, when we talk about glorifying God, let's think about a definition for glorify. What is an accurate definition for glorify? All right. All right, to glorify means to give a correct estimate of who God is. To give a correct estimate of who God is. Now, when we're talking about glorify, glorifying God in our body, it does mean purity. It means purity within, in our thought life, in our attitudes. Because where does he dwell? Within, right? All right. What goes on inside eventually comes outside. Now, should people be able to look at us and know we're different just by our appearance? What about that should look different? Our dress. All right, our dress. Dress modestly. Dress modestly. All right, anything else? That's a big thing, isn't it? Our countenance. Yeah. 
When people observe our life, does it give a true estimate of who we belong to? It should, shouldn't it? Just when people observe our life, as our pastor says, living a beautiful life, a beautiful life, a life that reflects who God is and what he's like in our attitudes and actions and our countenance. The Bible says, don't be cast down. Why? Who's our hope? The Lord's our hope. So if he is truly our hope, is our countenance going to reflect that regardless of what we're going through? Yes, yes it is. Yeah, I was thinking about this. Is it fair to think that this is part of God's image being restored within us? Um, God's image being restored within us is the process of sanctification. It is reflected in our attitudes and actions and every what, everything that we do. Whether or not that image is being restored can be seen in progressive Christ-likeness. You can see it as you watch that person's life because what's going on inside eventually comes out. Remember what Amy Carmichael said? When the cup is bumped, What's in it comes out. So if life's going smooth, it's easy, right, to put on a, a good countenance. But when life is everything other than what you would have wanted and your countenance reflects the Lord and your attitudes and actions reflect the Lord, that's the big test, isn't it? That's the big test. Everybody can praise the Lord when things are going their own way, but what do you do when life is everything other than what you would have wanted it to be? That's the big test. All right, in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 22, he says, You were bought with a price. What does he say not to do because of that? Do not become the slaves of men. What does it mean? What does it mean to be a slave of men? In a practical way, what does that mean? He's contrasting it here. Because I belong to the Lord, do I have... Can I let other people control what I do? Yes. If I do, who am I a slave of? The Lord? Or men. Men. We're not to fear anybody or anything at any time. Because if we do, what will happen to us? If you fear somebody, what are you going to do? You're going to do what they say do. You, now, they may not tell you to do something, but can you sometimes sense people's attitudes and things they want you to do? And if you yield to that, whose slave are you? You're their slave. Now, that's something that's big in our world, isn't it? Letting other people control who we are and what we do. Wanting their favor rather than the favor of God. Don't we see that a lot? Peer pressure. 
You don't give in to peer pressure. You don't live your life to please men. You live your life to please God. Now let's balance that out. That doesn't mean that wives ought to seek to please their husbands, but not contrary to the Word of God. That doesn't mean that you don't do things for people that you care about, that you don't consider them. It just means they don't control what you do, and you never do anything to please anybody if it is contrary to your conscience or contrary to the Word of God, no matter who they are. You never do anything contrary because you belong to someone else, and you are to give a correct estimate of who he is. It's very easy to let people we love determine what we do sometimes. But we are not to do that. We're to view ourselves as I'm not my own. I belong to another. And what should be our attitude in belonging to him? That's the greatest privilege a human being can have is to belong to the Lord. So we should want to please him. 1 Peter 1, verses 17 through 19. If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, how are we to conduct ourselves? In fear. Now this word literally means fear. It doesn't mean reverential awe. It means fear. Do you think most people have that attitude about the coming judgment? No. If they did, wouldn't it make a difference? Now we're going to do a whole study on the judgment seat of Christ. But our attitude should be, God knows everything. Everything. Now, if what you said and what you were thinking was known by everybody, would it make a difference in what you thought and said? Should it? No. It shouldn't. You should be very aware that one day all of that is going to be displayed to everybody. Now, people have a false concept about that. They think if they confess it, that God's forgotten it. No, he doesn't remember it against you when it comes to your standing. But it will be brought to light and brought to judgment by God because he's an impartial judge. And sometimes um, we have people, and we don't know whether they're saved or not. I, I would make the judgment they're not, but they profess to be. Like Robbie Zacharias. See, people just esteemed him highly, right? They thought so much of him because outwardly he was saying the right things. But that secret life he was doing. One day every single thing about that is going to be brought to light. The people who enabled it, the people who participated in it, it's going to all be known. 
We don't always know where something started, do we? But God knows, and one day everybody's going to know. And there are people that are probably doing that kind of thing now that we don't know they're doing it. And they may die with a clean slate before men. But one day, they'll all be known. Everything. Now, if you really believe that, what's going to change about what you do in secret? The Bible says every word that's been spoken in secret will be shouted on the housetops. What does that mean? No more secrets. Do you see why it says conduct yourself in fear? Somehow it's, it's okay with us if God knows, but nobody else knows. If that's true of us, Whose slaves are we? Saints. Well, we're the slave of men. If we care more what men think and know than what God knows. Isn't that true? Now that should teach us to be careful, to be fearful about the way we entertain thoughts and things that we say, quote, behind people's backs. Nothing's behind God's back, is it? Nothing. Every thought, every attitude, everything is going to be made known. Every motive. It's all going to be made known. Why we did what we did. What we did in secret. What we said in secret. Can you see how important that is to conduct yourself in fear? Yes. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ in context what else is he saying here he's saying because of who you are right and whose you are you need to be careful about that how you live how you act your attitudes your actions your words because you don't belong to yourself you have no right to say things and do things that are contrary to who you are. Do you? Now, if you had a child and and they knew they belonged to you, they old enough to know who they belong to, right? And you've trained them up and in rebellion they show up. What's gonna happen? They gonna get by? Huh? Do they act in fear when they know what's coming? <laughs> Do they control how they act? Well, that's because they haven't been trained. That's because they haven't been trained. See, that's parental responsibility to train children as to how to act. And if you don't train them, they're not going to act like that. But you bring them up knowing we're different, right? We're different. And because of who we are, this is how you act. I've talked to y'all about how they train royalty from the time they're little. They tell them who they are. Because of who you are, you don't act like common people, right? Now, I told you last week, is there any higher royalty than we are? Is there? So, should that be something we consider in our behavior, in our thought life, in our attitudes? in our actions. 
Yes. All right, in Revelation 5 and verse 9. He says, And they sang a new song, saying, These are the creatures around the throne. And when Jesus, when Jesus takes the book, remember the little book that's the title deed to the earth? When he takes that book and breaks its seals, he says, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Do you see how over and over in the scripture it tells you that God purchased you, that you're his, and the cost was pricely, it was the blood of his son? Therefore, how should you view yourself as valuable? Listen to me, young women who give themselves away before marriage if they're a professing Christian, do they have any understanding of what we're talking about? Now, if they viewed themselves as purchased by God, would they view themselves as precious and therefore to be guarded? Yes. Uh, our pastor was on vacation last week, and our associate preached a sermon from the Song of Solomon. I mean, it was so on target. I told him I've never read a commentary or heard a message so on target as it was. And he talked about the husband praising his wife for keeping her virginity till their marriage. That's the way it's supposed to be, but it's rare in our culture, isn't it? Even among professing Christians. Now, if young women viewed themselves as priceless and precious, would they do that? No. No. So it's the church's responsibility to let people know how precious they are because of what they cost God. Do you think most people view themselves that way? No. But is that the biblical view of yourself? That you're the most precious thing and all of God's creation because of your cost. And if you view yourself that way, it's going to show in everything you do, isn't it? It's going to show in everything you do. Will anybody's words then trouble you? No, because you know who you are. You have a right sense of self-worth because you know how precious you are to the only one that really matters. The only one that really matters. Does it really matter what other people think? No. Doesn't really matter. Can anybody compare to him? No. So we need to renew our mind as to these things. Make our mind think big, biblically. Alright? In Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, 
all lost men are under the power of the wicked one. And they're under the dominion of darkness. And they're in the kingdom of darkness. We were rescued. We were freed from that. At the moment of salvation, you were freed from that. Now, what is to be our attitude toward this lost world? I'm friends with Dr. Cox on Facebook, and he posts a lot, and his posts are always excellent. He and Jerry Joe really reach a lot of people through Facebook, the things they post. And he posted something last week about how believers need to be careful what they said about lost people. He said, we are here as you know to reach them and you can't reach them if you talk about them being evil now they are evil but they're lost men under the control of adam's nature his fallenness sin controls them and when we look at people that are lost like i said the other week they run the gamut right from Cornelius's to people like Saddam Hussein and all in between but people can set your attitude toward them and you should view people who are lost with pity right because what's their destination hell now we should not want anybody to go there because it is a place of unbelievable, unending punishment. And we're here, the, as the Lord sent Jesus, so he sends us. And he came to seek and to save all that Adam lost. That's our job. We're ambassadors for Christ. And we're to plead with people to be reconciled to God. Now, when you're talking to people, they can tell by your attitude toward them if you genuinely care for them. Can't you tell when people genuinely care for you? And see, we should have the utmost pity for people who are lost because they're dominated by sin. And there's no way they can reform, but they can't genuinely change on their own. That takes the grace of God. And it's our responsibility to view them correctly and to speak correctly and lovingly to them. Now, you're going to have one or two responses when you do that. Some people are going to love you and come to Christ. Other people are going to hate you and revile you. Was that true of Jesus? Yes. Was it true of the apostles? Yes. It will also be true of us. But see, our persecution should not be because we've done evil things. It should be because of godliness. And sometimes people say things about bad Christians because they don't glorify God. They don't give a correct estimate of who God is. Listen, the only reason you are saved is because God was merciful and gracious to you. That's the only reason. 
You had nothing to offer him but your sinful self. And so sometimes Christians get, in a sense, very proud of who they become because of what Christ did on their behalf. And people can set that pride. Radio on Focus on Family today, a pastor was telling a story about two people that came to the church. It's a big church, and uh, they were gay women, lesbians, and living together, married, whatever. Well, a friend, uh, a member of the church invited one of them, and she brought, she said, Oh, really? They accept gay people? And so they went just to get reactions. And they told everybody they met, oh, this is my wife. This is my wife. We're gay. We're gay. Well, nobody condemned them. Everybody was friendly and welcomed them. And time went on. The, the girl that she invited kept coming, but the mate dropped off. After two years, this lady gets saved under the word of God every week and gives her life to Christ, leaves that lifestyle is a leader in the church now but his point was most of us act like the pharisees and we say oh no and a lady that was uh he was talking about had told him uh, they sat in front of me i didn't want to sit near them they made me very distracted and i've been in that position i have seen that very thing and said oh no i cannot be in worship service with this right in front of me and so it's distracting, and but that's really a bad attitude and a judgmental. Instead of a seeing them, and his, this pastor's point was: Do we see people like God sees them right. with the love that God has for them, or do we see them like the Pharisees see them? And that's so true, especially in our area. <laughs> it's so true that we don't genuinely care for people's souls. We don't want to well, if people think you're calling them evil, are they going to be open to your message? And see, people ought to sense genuine love and genuine concern for lost people. And they don't often feel that. But that was what Dr. Cox was talking about. You know, believers shouldn't post things on Facebook about people being evil. Now the Bible talks about this evil generation, that's true. But we're talking about our attitude when we're trying to reach people for Christ. Our attitude should be one of love and compassion because they're slaves of sin just like we were. And without the grace of God and without the redeeming blood of Christ, there go we. There go we. Some of us would be worse than others. But somebody at some point was gracious to you and gave you the gospel message. And it's easy to forget that when you just stay in Christian circles. It's easy to forget that. But we should care enough for people's souls that it makes us lose self-consciousness. What do I mean by that? We all read about these heroes that, you know, they see a car wreck and the car's on fire and they go pull somebody out of that fire at their own risk, right? They've lost sense of self-consciousness 
to enable them to do that. People who go into burning houses and rescue people, uh, they've lost that sense of self-consciousness because of the concern of the other people. And see, I've said many times, and I still believe it's true, Christians really don't believe in hell. They really don't. Because if they did, they would lose all sense of self-consciousness out of concern. Some of them even in our family members and, and friends. See, you have no sense of self-consciousness and urgency if you, if you don't really believe in hell. I think it was Dwight Moody said, if I could have just one thing, it would be three seconds in hell. Why did he say something like that? Because if you really experienced what it's going to be like, it would give you that deep sense of urgency. But see, we don't study about hell. We don't really know about hell. We don't really believe all men are born condemned. Not really. We really don't. If we really did, we would make sure. The Bible says make your calling and election sure. Make it a sure thing. Nail it down. And with me, with family members, if I'm in doubt, if I don't see the fruit I think I need to see, I'm going to talk to them about it. Why? Because I'm that concerned about their soul. I'm that concerned. It makes you lose all sense of what might, they might say back or what they might do or how they might respond. Why? Because you, you're reaching in there to pull them out of the fire. Does the Bible tell us to do that? Yes. The Bible tells us to do that. But do we do that? Alright, in Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. You remember in the earthly sanctuary, remember the one that the tabernacle they built? How often could the high priest go in? Once a year. And what did he take to put on the altar? The blood of goats and calves. But Christ entered the heavenly tabernacle. And what did he take with him? His own blood. His own blood. Because he had obtained for us eternal redemption. He possessed you forever because he purchased you. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who had been defiled sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, look at that term in verse 14. What does it say? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your what? 
conscience from what? Dead works. Now, what does it mean to cleanse your conscience from dead works? What is the conscience of man? Remember, it's that faculty that God put in all men that responds to a taught standard. So what is he meaning about cleansing your conscience from dead works? How many of you were brought up with false Christian beliefs? All of us, right? All right, do they sometimes still have a pull on you? That's because, see, your conscience was trained to a false standard. So you have to the responsibility of training your conscience. Your conscience isn't infallible because it's going to go off to a taught standard, morally and culturally. It's going to go off to a taught standard. And so when you're studying the Bible, you're going to come up against things that aren't biblical that you've been told to do or not to do. And the way you have to cleanse your conscience is in renewing your mind. You have to take those thoughts captive and you have to say, this is what I've been brought up to believe, but this is what God says is true. And you do away with the old training. You retrain your conscience. Everybody that I know that got into serious Bible study has had to do that. Has had to do that. And so that's how you have to do it. You that's It's dead works. It's things that aren't God-honoring. Even though it might not be bad things, it's still going to control you because your thought process is what you believe is how you live. And so you ask yourself, is what I've heard the truth? Now, you know what we've all come up against when we hear the truth? Well, I've heard so-and-so all my life. How many times have you said that to yourself? I've heard this all my life, but this isn't true, right? This isn't true. This is what is true. That's what it means to cleanse your conscience from dead works. And that's an ongoing process, right? It's an ongoing process. I've had people say to me, um, you know, that would be going to church every time the doors open and they'd say, well, I don't know if so-and-so is saved or not because they're not there on Wednesday night. <laughs> Where does it say, thou shalt? <laughs> Go to church every time the doors open. There are times that you can feel like Sunday's the hardest day of work you do. <laughs> I bet pastors feel that way sometimes. And yet, what's it supposed to be? The day of rest. All right. See, until you cleanse your conscience from dead works, are you really serving God? Or are you serving men? You're serving men. For this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant. So that since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who've been called may receive the promise of an eternal 
inheritance. Remember what I told you about your inheritance? You will always get your inheritance. Always. You can lose your rewards. There are some rewards you can't lose. And we're going to do a whole study on rewards. Because I think it's important for you to know how to lay up your treasure in heaven. Do y'all think that's important? Do you? I do too. So, but your inheritance is different than your rewards. Remember our inheritance is equal with Christ. It's eternal. It's reserved in heaven for us. So nobody can get it. You can't change it. God won't change it. Because it's all based on who we are as sons. But the things, the things that can cause us to earn rewards, what does the Bible teach we will do with those when we receive them? We'll catch them at his feet. Now, the Bible talks about, you know, when the Lord comes back, some people will shrink back in shame at his coming. How many of y'all have ever been somewhere where everybody brought a gift but you? That, that ever happened? You, you've been there and you didn't even think about a gift. And What was your feeling when, when gifts were being opened? You were embarrassed, right? See, that's what the Bible's talking about when you're talking about shrinking back in shame when you see him. Because you're going to see other people be able to give him crowns. And you will have nothing to give. I don't want that to happen, do you? No. See, the more you realize how precious you are to him and the relationship he's called you to, the more you want to be able to give him something back. And the only thing we can give him initially is our sinful self, right? So he's told us about the different rewards, the different crowns we can earn, how to earn them. And so we want to learn how to do that and learn how to not lose what we've gained. Because I mentioned Ravi Zacharias. If he was a Christian, what happened to everything he could ever have earned? It was burned up, right? And he was saved so as by fire. We don't want that, do we? We don't want that. And people can go a long way in walking with the Lord, and little by little, things begin to creep in. See, nobody ends up weighing 600 pounds overnight. Got their bite at a time. That's true spiritually, too. See, there are laws. Spiritual laws and physical laws. And when the Bible says, Thou shalt and thou shalt not, there's a law connected to that. And we need to learn that. If you go out here and see a yield sign, you don't ignore it. What do you do? You yield, right? You yield the right of way. If you do otherwise, you're taking a chance of something serious happening. Is that true? Same is true spiritually. That God didn't give us commandments because he disliked us. He did it for our safety and for our blessing because he knows the danger spiritually. We need to take heed to those things spiritually and heed them. Um, you know, when the Bible says, give thanks in all things, do you think everybody does that? 
Everybody doesn't do that. But are we told to do that? Why? Because there's a spiritual law connected to that. When when some of the all things hit, what can happen to you? Can you get cast down? Can you get fearful? See, all kind of negative things can happen to you, right? But you can't think about two things at one time. A lot of people live in fear over the, maybe this is going to happen, maybe that's going to happen. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah. It can happen to us, can't it? But if we learn that God is providential, and I want to I wanna give you an illustration because I give you a lot of personal illustrations because people have told me it helps them. Um, Y'all know, you know, I went to the hand doctor and talked to him about surgery, and he said, I'm going to run some tests. He said, you've got gout. That's pretty evident. And so, you know, he told me I had gout. But gout's caused by inflammation. And so they did some blood work. And I, he said, now I'm not going to write you a prescription. I want your primary care physician to do that. So the girl called me and she said, your gout test is back. And she said, seven is high and you're a 10. And she said, um, the others... Our other tests aren't back yet. So I went to see Dr. Coons, and he said, did they tell you you have rheumatoid arthritis? And I said, no, I didn't know I had that. Well, I didn't know that much about it. I had heard, you know, different people have it through the years, but I didn't know that much about it, so I started reading up on it. I'm in the fourth stage. That's the last stage. I didn't know that arthritis could attack your internal organs and cause a TIA, which I had, cause polycythemia, which I have, cause bronchiectasis, which I have, cause your bones to fuse together, which I have. Now, I've been going to this same doctor for 20 years. I got all the symptoms of last stage, and yet he hadn't caught it. No, he hadn't caught it. He hadn't caught it, because he never ran a test to find out if I had rheumatoid arthritis. And yet I have, I mean, <laughs> one of the girls in my son's school class said, I can look at you and tell you have rheumatoid arthritis, because my hands are so deformed. That's last stage. Now, what is my attitude to be in that? Do y'all know how I ever decided to go to the hand doctor? Because there was a woman in our church that when I was at my car one day, I saw and she had on this thing, you know, on her hand. But people can wear things like that when it's sprained it. And I said, what would you do to your hand? And she said, oh, I had surgery. She said, I had arthritis really bad in my finger. So Dr. Dew operated on it. And I said, oh. So I kept thinking about that. And I saw her a few weeks later. And I said, how you doing? She said, oh, my hand is fine now. No pain. And I said, now tell me this doctor's name. You see, in my mind, it's the providence of God that I just happened to see her 
and talk to her about her hand. I don't see her every Sunday. She doesn't sit around me. I just see her every once in a while to throw my hand up. You see, when we know we belong to him, things may get by other people, but it's never gotten by God. And the last time I was in to see my internist, about four months ago, I told him when I went in, I said, I am falling apart. I'm falling apart. I said, I'm not sleeping at night because my hands are so painful. Is there anything I can take other than Celebrex? He said, no. And I had begun to ask the Lord, would you uncover the reason for all these things that are going on in my body? Well, did he do that? Yes. Now, I don't question why it wasn't done before. You know, why did God providentially expose this? Because the Lord does not exempt us from anything that other people go through, saved or lost. He lets his own have things that can be very painful, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. He allows it for his purposes in and through our lives. So we accept it. And we don't question. We don't get angry. And we don't get upset. We accept it. And we give him thanks. Why? Because this is what he's told us to do in every situation of life. Do y'all follow what I'm saying? And you don't blame people. I know that he should have caught this long time ago, probably when I had the TI-8 20 years ago. It should have been caught then. If it had been caught then, see, you can't cure it. It's progressive, but you can slow the progression if you have treatment. So what is our attitude to be when that kind of thing happens to us? We're to accept it, and we're to give thanks in it, and we're to know God has a purpose. Because are we precious to him? Could he have prevented it? Yes. Could he have revealed it earlier? But he chose not to. But in his time and in his way, he exposed it. Do y'all see how life works when you belong to him? See, your trust is in him. He's got you. And, and listen to me, folks. He's not only got you, he's got yours. Remember Job? What was around he and all of his possessions and all of his family? A hedge. Did he ask God to put it there? Why was it there? Because of his life. And God only let Satan touch him at his permission. Why? Because Job was looking for a redeemer who was to come. Is that true? Now, the same is true for you and me. Sometimes God may let the devil eat your lunch. But we give thanks in all things. Why? But this is the will of God, that you give thanks in all things. 
Because if you know what we're talking about, about belonging to the Lord and how precious you are to him, you know that he has the power. This one who spoke into existence, worlds beyond our comprehension, is able to keep you. And if you remember, just because you're his and precious to him, doesn't mean that he's not going to let you have painful life experiences, right? It means he wants to use those life experiences to show other people that his strength is made perfect in weakness. Does that glorify God? Does it give a correct estimate of who we belong to when we can respond rightly in life situations? Yes. And you see, worry and fretting over things, does that give a reflection of God that you want to give? No. So, do you fret and worry about your children and grandchildren if they go astray? Not supposed to. Why? God is going to look after them. Does he promise to? Yes. See, he promises to bless your children's children. How long? To a thousandth generation. Because you love him and keep his commandments. Is that a promise? Yes. Is there a condition? Yes. Loving him and obeying him. There's a condition. To many promises of God, there's a condition. Like, he says, he's going to feed you like the birds. Is that what he says? And he's going to clothe you like the lilies. Is that what he says? But is there a condition? Yes. If we seek first for his kingdom and his righteousness, he will feed us like the birds. He will clothe us like the lilies. So it's important to see the promises of God, but are there conditions to those promises? Because many times there are conditions to be met. All right, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, we're going to see what we were redeemed from. It says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might do what? Redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. So what place does the law have in the life of a believer? Are you still under the law? No. Are you under the ceremonial law? Did y'all take a, a goat yesterday? So you're not under the ceremonial law. When the Bible says you're not under the law, it means the law, the moral law of God. Not just the Ten Commandments, but the, all the moral law of God is given for instruction in righteousness to the believer. It's not a means of salvation, never was. How have all men always been saved? How were Adam and Eve saved? By faith in what? In the coming Messiah. In the Messiah who was to come. Um, 
did I tell y'all about this, uh, my daughter's friend that's a pastor and something she posted on Facebook? She posted on Facebook that nowhere in the Bible did it talk about a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That God was so compassionate when man was ashamed, he killed an animal and clothed him. And when she said, told me, was reading, you know, what she had posted, I said, that's heresy. I said, the Bible clearly states that God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And I said, shame and hide from God is a result of disobedience. Man had no self-consciousness before that time. He freely walked in fellowship with God. Now, where in the world did she get such a notion? She probably read what somebody said rather than reading the Bible. You think? You think? But guess how many people probably believe that? A lot. Because they think pastors know what they're talking about. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. You better know enough to know how to check them out, right? <laughs> and everybody else as well. Everybody. So we're not under the law, we're under grace. But does grace demand more than the law? Yeah. See, the Bible says, Thou shalt not steal. But can you steal more than property? Can you? Yes. The Bible says thou shalt not commit adultery. Do you remember what Jesus said about it? If you even look on a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. See, it, it's the grace walk is an inward walk. It's not outward, it's inward. Alright, in Romans 6, 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that though you were, what? Slaves of sin. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been, what? Freed from sin, you became slaves of what? Now, who did this? Huh? Who did it? God did it. How did he do it? How did he release you from being a slave of sin? What had to happen to you? How were you freed from sin? Huh? We were crucified with Christ. Now, I was talking to somebody at one time, and she'd been under a lot of wrong teaching. And, and, and because she had, she would gotten real confused and kind of what Baptists would call backslidden. She didn't go into, you know, a life of overt sin, but she was just really hurt and confused and wasn't walking with the Lord, we would put it that way. And when she and I were talking, she said, well, I was just so bad I was crucified with Christ. So I had no rights. I had nothing. You see, 
the right view of being crucified with Christ is what was crucified? What does the Bible call that that was crucified? The old man. The old man was crucified with Christ. So what was that old man? It was everything you were in Adam by standing and state. What does that mean? Your standing is like in Romans 5 when it says you were God's enemy, right? You were helpless, you were hopeless, you were condemned, right? That's your standing in Adam. It's equal with all men who are not in Christ. Their standing is equal. It also crucified your personal state. What is that? It's everything you did from the time you had the knowledge of right and wrong until the day of conversion. All right? It doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to make choices about where you live, what you wear, what you eat. Your personality doesn't change. And your likes and dislikes about some people like steak, some don't. Some like it rare, some like it, you know, well done. Those things about you remain. God fine-tunes your personality, but he doesn't change it. Peter was Peter his whole life. Paul was Paul his whole life. You will be you your whole life. God just wants you to be a better you. But everything that you were before is gone crucified with Christ but you are also raised with Christ to walk in newness of life and see her concept through the teaching she had gotten is that she shouldn't have any personal preferences about anything because if she did she wasn't the slave of God God's not a taskmaster to let him be your master means you let him direct your way that, to me, is the most insane thing in the world, is not to let God direct your way. He knows everything. And he knows when we make different choices what the outcome's going to be. And he only wants the best for us. So, submitting yourself to the Lord, getting up in the morning and saying, I commit myself to you for this day, direct me into everything that you want me to do. That's what you do. But you are still you. If you liked blue before you got saved, you're still going to like blue. And that's not against God. God's not going to tell you to quit liking blue and start liking pink. But see, she had these false concepts. And she didn't know what to do with so many things in life because of all this confusion about being crucified with Christ. And when Paul says, I no longer live, he's talking about that old person he was, no longer lived. But Christ lives in me. And y'all remember me telling you that word, we're so united with Christ that we're biscuited together with him. And when you bake biscuits and take them out of the oven, you can't tell what's shortening and what's flour and what's milk, can you? Because it's all together. And see, when you're walking with the Lord, Sometimes you will have promptings. And, and when people have certain personalities, they, they get all caught up, well, is that the Lord or that me? And this is my answer. If it's not sin, do it. Right? 
do it. Because the Bible says God works in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. Where does he work? In our desires. See? He gives you the desire to do something good for somebody. That's him. Don't quench the spirit. If that's not sin, go for it. Go for it. Do it. All right, do you see in Romans 6, verse 17 and 18, that you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin's power. Now, what do you have remaining in you as a believer? Huh? All right, you have something that the Bible calls the flesh. Now, when the Bible, when Paul says, when I was in the flesh, that means the lost man is dominated by the flesh because he's dominated by sin. But when the old man dies and we die in Christ and we're raised again, we still have this residue within us that the Bible calls the flesh. It's a principle of sin that lives in you as long as you live. But because you have the spirit dwelling in you, you have the power to overcome the flesh. Now, there's a continual war between the flesh and the spirit. And whoever you yield to is who is going to be in control of you. But you have been, when it's talking about you've been freed from sin, you've been freed from its penalty, that's justification. You've been, been redeemed from its power. Sin no longer has power over you. Sin is now a choice. Lost man's control by it. With you, it's a choice. When you're tempted to sin, you say what? No, I don't have to do that anymore. Isn't that free? That's a message. That's good news that you don't have to do it anymore. And one day we'll be saved from sin's presence. All right, what is the true believer a slave of? According to Romans 6, 17 and 18. Righteousness. He, now you're a slave of righteousness. When you don't do what's right, how do you know? <laughs> you have a what? You have a buzzer that goes off. Uh, you have a faithful Holy Spirit living in you that convicts you, doesn't he? All right. And so you can't stand it till you get right with God. You're a slave of righteousness. All right, in Ephesians 2, 2 through 3. In which you formerly walked according to what? The course of this world. What does it mean to walk according to the course of this world? It means your life is too interested in what you own, who you are. I'm talking about before men, position, and pleasure. That those things really 
of what control your decisions. That's walking according to the course of this world. It's it's that that these things, pleasure and position and possessions, are what dominate most of your thinking, most of your activities, and most of what you pursue. You pursue you might pursue God, but you, it's really all built around these things. That's walking according to the course of this world. How can you tell when somebody's doing that? You just watch them. You just watch them and listen to them. You actively listen to the, what they're saying. And, and they're going to tell you what they're living for. You can see it. They may be going to church. They can be be teaching Bible study and doing all the right things. And yet, why are they doing what they're doing? It's for the praise of men. It's to be seen and known. Y'all know. You've seen it. We've all seen it. All right, that's people who are walking according to the course of this world. Now, what's the danger in that for a believer? What does God's word say? If you're a friend of the world, what does God's word say? You're an enemy of God. Can Christians get all caught up in that? Yeah. Now, I'm going to say something that I think you'll agree with, but whether you agree with it or not, it's true. The Bible teaches that the laborer is worthy of his hire. Is that true? Yeah. That you should pay those that teach you. you should, they should be able to get their support from you. Is that what the Bible teaches? Is it? Yes. So we should pay our pastors well. They should not be, you know, living in poverty with them and their family. When, when a pastor is interviewed, you find out about his family. If he has a lot of children and one of them's sick, what do you know he needs? He needs a, a good salary and he needs a good benefit plan to help him take care of his family. That's legitimate and that's good. But these people, most of them are on TV, and some of them are worth millions. Is that right? No, that's wrong. Is that walking according to the course of this world? Yes. Now, all of us, when you go in to buy a book, and all books written by somebody, is that true? How much do most books cost if you don't get them somewhere like Amazon or somewhere like that? They still cost $20 if you get them from Amazon. But they may. But how, how much are books in bookstores? $20, $25 at least. At least $25 to $30, $40, right? Now, if they sell a lot of books, they're going to make a lot of money. What do you think God thinks about Christians in ministry? who have accumulated millions of dollars off of ordinary people, because most Christians are ordinary people. Not many wise, not many rich, right? Is that what the Bible says? Yeah. So they have accumulated millions of dollars over people who just wanted to know about God. What do you think God thinks about that? Huh? You think he approves? No. No, he doesn't. Now, I'm, I'm adamant about a lot. 
if I got a belief, I got it all the way, I'm all in. <laughs> and I'm all in about that. See, that tells me something about that person's inner life. Do y'all see what I'm saying? Are they walking according to the course of this world? I heard Beth Moore say she took her whole family on a cruise. And I thought, my goodness, what'd that cost? How many of us can afford to take our whole family on a cruise? <laughs> right, how many of us can afford to go on a cruise? True, isn't it true? And yet she makes enough. I, I'd be ashamed to tell it if I'd done it, wouldn't you? But see, that tells me what's happened to her conscience. She's it's seared. She's huh? She's oh, sure. Right. Yeah. See, money has the power to corrupt, doesn't it? Do you see that that's pursuing money, that's walking according to the course of this world? And it begins, what happens to a lot of people when they become, quote, successful in ministry is they like a lot of people, so they lessen the message. Why? To tickle the ears to get more people, to get more people. And you put yourself in danger. Now, how do you get there? A little at a time. See, you're, we're always making decisions about everything, aren't we? And those decisions are determining the course of our life. It's, it's determining who we're going to be in the future. I'm sure. And, you know, to me, we're in such a sad shape in this country right now. Those were desperate people in there mm -hmm. seeking God. Mm -hmm. And I'm praying that they got a message that they needed. Well, I doubt that, Lee. Well, you know, it's all about your life in this world, though. Yeah. It's all about your life in this world. And if you listen to his interviews, it's not all about the Lord. It's not all about him. And, and the Bible talks about teachers who tickle ears, right? The Bible talks about that. We should know the book, and we should flee from people who tickle ears. We should flee from that. Why? That's spiritual danger. That's playing with fire. That's risking everything. Risking everything. Now, y'all know what my attitude about that kind of thing is. You flee from it. Because can it impact you? Can it catch up with you? Yes, you don't have anything to do with things like that. All right, according to the prince of the power of the air, because who formed this world system? The devil. So if somebody starts walking according to the course of this world, who are they yielding to? Whose territory have they gone back into? The devil. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, we says about this phrase, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, he says that Satan works in the heart of a lost man to do his will in the same way that the Holy Spirit works in the heart of the believer to do his will. Now, when you know that, and if a lost person is reacting to you, who's behind it? 
Satan. And see, the Bible says we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. See, that person's not your problem. Who's your problem? Satan. Satan's trying to wound you. He's trying to pull you down from your heavenly position. You don't respond to that. Right? He's, he's your enemy. The person before you that he's using is not your enemy. Right? So you don't react. Among them, we too all formerly lived. How do we all live? In the lust of our flesh. Yielding to the flesh. Why? Because we were in the flesh. We were controlled by the flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature what? Children of wrath. Even as a wrath. Born under the wrath of God. Is that what John chapter 3, 36 tells us? Yes, that they're children of wrath, born under God's wrath, born condemned. We were there too. How'd you get out of there? All right, by God's grace, right? The Spirit of God had to begin a willing work in your life. With some people like me, it lasted years. With other people, it was just a short period of time. But he had to do a work in your heart because the Bible says no man seeks after God. So if you came to God, who sought you? He did. He's the one that pursued you. His, want, his, his love won you over. And now you're his. Is that the most wonderful thing that could ever have happened to you? Now let me ask you this. If you ask in your Sunday school class, because people talk more there, what's the most wonderful thing that ever happened to you? What would most people say? Right? No, it wouldn't be the Lord, would it? All right. The picture in the word redeem sets forth mankind as a slave under bondage to a law he cannot keep because he's born a sinner. Because he's born a sinner, he's a slave of sin, of Satan, and this world system. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. And our baptism into Christ the power of sin is broken so that we're no longer sin's slave. We're translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son and we no longer walk according to the course of this world. No longer slaves of sin, Satan, and darkness. Now next week we'll look at what we are slaves of. All right, pray with me. Father, we thank you for this miraculous work that you've done in us to make us your own. I just pray that the ramifications 
of your word would sink deep in our being and would change us. That your powerful word would have its way and that false concepts would be destroyed. Ways of life that are worldly would be forsaken and that we would embrace the privilege of living as yours, purchased by you, and that we would consider that the highest privilege we could ever have, and that we would, in return, because of our gratitude and our love, seek to please you in the innermost recesses of our being. And we ask this, Father, that you would be pleased and that you would be honored and that you would be glorified. Amen. <clears throat>